0: Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 6, 5 through 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door
1: Thanks, Anna, for that. Well, as I said earlier, it's great to be back with you today. Um, it's been um, a time we, we have definitely missed being here, and it's good to come back and have people say, We're glad you're back, not you're back. <laughs> so thanks for making us feel welcome back today, too. Um, the three weeks we had um, were exactly uh, used exactly as they were intended to be, uh, and we come back feeling very refreshed. Um, with a good game plan and just um, excited to be here and move forward. So thank you for those of you, uh, thank you for the congregation being flexible, for letting us experience and feel and know you were praying for us. I mean, there's something about when you ask your people to pray in the church, when God's people pray, and a lot of you have experienced this in your life, you know people are praying. You sense that God is moving and working through the prayers of his people, so thank you for that. Thank you for the cards, thank you for the meals, and we just felt very loved and uh, glad to be back today to start this um, series in prayer with you this morning. So let's do that. You ready? Let's do it. Well, it's Martin Luther who said, um, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Alive without breathing. In other words, prayer, he says, it's essential to life, as essential to life as breath, or water, or food, those things that sustain you and keep you alive. You die without it, he says, like you would without food. Well, if that's the case, and that's the truth, why do we struggle with prayer so much? Why do you struggle with prayer so much? Why do I? I think it's really important that as we start a little mini-series on prayer, as we go through the Lord's Prayer over the next three weeks, it's really important for us to start right up top and acknowledge Prayer is hard. Prayer is hard in some ways. It's hard for all of us in this room. It's good to acknowledge that and just say we're all on the same page. But if you think about it, nothing great, which prayer is, is ever easy, is it? Nothing great. A great work of art, you think about. Or mastering a skill or a sport or a hobby or an instrument, or getting the shot of a lifetime on a, on a dream hunt. I mean, nothing, nothing that's great comes easy. Cooking a feast, all of those things, none of those come easy. Nothing great ever does. And if prayer is God's way of bringing us into his great glory, his great life, his great presence, why would it be any different? It's hard. It's a great gift God has given to us. It's difficult, it's challenging, and so we're all in this together, everyone in this room. Sometimes I feel like my prayer life was like, remember the first time you were driving after you got your license and you, you got to a place, point A to point B, and when you got there you realized, like, how did I get here? You, just, you weren't even thinking, you ever had that? Like, you're, how did I get here? Maybe you still do it. Uh, I, I do sometimes. Well, my prayer sometimes feels like that. Distracted. Uh, sometimes a mindless exercise of getting from point A to point B, and I finish it, and I'm like, how did I get here? What did I say? What did did I just do? Can you relate to that? Maybe you can. It's hard because it's great. Here's another reason it's hard. It's hard because we are still sinful. We still have a a sinful nature. One of the main thrusts of the passage today we're going to see, which is in the Sermon the Sermon on the Mount, which was written to disciples, is that When we pray, when we pray, we approach God. And when we approach God and come into his presence, even there, our sinful nature gets in the way. Even when we come to the presence of God, Jesus still has to say, well, don't pray like this. He has to warn us, beware, don't pray like that. Be aware of your own sinful bent as you pray, Jesus has to say. It's written to disciples now, the church, the Sermon on the Mount. Even when we approach God in in his presence, our sin follows us there and can make prayer hard. Can you relate to that? Here's another reason it's hard. It's hard because it's vulnerable, isn't it? Prayer is vulnerable. You are bowing. You're admitting, I'm not God. Getting on your knees maybe. Opening up your weaknesses and your needs to the all powerful God. It's vulnerable, even some, I think, some parallel in the ways that even sex between a married couple of 15, 20 years can still be vulnerable. It's very intimate and revealing. But if it's the lifeblood of the Christian life, if it's the air we breathe, we, and if, it's, if uh, it's for our disciples, we must plead with Jesus as the disciples did Lord, teach us to pray. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to plead with Jesus. Continue to teach us. We're going to ask him that. So let's do that now again with a a little prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Uh, We know how in many ways we do pray, and yet we want to grow in intimacy. And if you were warning your disciples, your followers, of uh, the the difficulty of prayer, the challenges with it, we want to hear it too. So use this series to do that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. The Lord's Prayer is smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle of it. And in this uh, sermon, Jesus is laying out his vision, his idea, his vision for the disciples' life in this newly inaugurated kingdom of heaven. So this morning, we're going to ask Jesus to examine our own heart motives for prayer. We're going to look at two negative examples and one positive example. So that our hope will be and our desire as we come to the end of even this morning, that we will pray a bit more like true citizens of the kingdom. So if you got your outline there, we got half sheets in the summer until so we get life group questions back on them. Grab it and have your text open in Matthew 6, whether you got a smartphone or tablet or book, whatever you got, have it open as we uh, look at first our first negative motive for prayer. Here it is. Don't, Jesus says, don't pray to impress people with public reputation but with a heart to approach God. It's this first negative example Jesus gives us. Don't pray to impress people with public reputation, but with a heart to approach God. Jesus is most, through the Sermon on the Mount, he's most concerned with our heart motives. That's why he says, well, you said this, but I say, and he takes it deeper, doesn't he, to a heart level. All through the Sermon on the Mount. He's concerned with that when he's teaching us how to pray, our heart or uh, in how we pray. So this week we're kind of on the how. We'll get to the what in the next couple weeks, but this is the how we pray this week. When the Bible talks about our heart, when Jesus is concerned about our heart, it is, it's the loving, feeling, driving, causal core of who we are. That's what your heart is. And the Bible says the word heart some 900 times, I think. That's what it means, that core of who we are. Our heart sets itself upon items and ideas and goals and loves and wants and needs. And then it orders our life around those things. We've talked about disordered loves before, haven't we here? And how to order it rightly and put God at the center. And a distorted sinful heart motive, Jesus is saying, can follow us into prayer. Can follow us that way. Well, this morning, as we look at these two negative warnings, our temptation is going to be to think, because I came to this week, I'm like, how are we going to apply this? Well, to think, well, that hypocrisy, it's, you know, it's the Pharisees, the showy spirituality, that's the Pharisees. I don't, you know, I'm not going out jumping on uh, street corners to pray. When was the last time you did that? Anybody? Nobody. So does this have anything to do with us? It does. It does. But I was thinking that this week, like, that's, that's just not kind of our culture, The key to this passage is this, up in chapter 6, verse 1. Here it is. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The whole chapter 6 is is predicated upon this this opening verse here. It's a warning. And the Sermon on the Mount is the words, as they said, to these Christian disciples. So Jesus is warning us as he says in verse 5. And when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, he said, they have received their reward. So if Jesus warns us there, we should pay attention, even if at first glance we're like, what does this have to do in 2019? The first challenge I want us to see this morning is that Jesus says in verses 5, 6, and 7, the first thing I want to see is he says, when you pray. Not if, when you pray. He, He just assumes, as he's speaking to the disciples, he just assumes that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're someone who prays. Not if, but when you pray. Jesus himself, wasn't he? He was a praying man, wasn't he? He was a praying man. Even as he is God the Son, he went to the Father. He prayed with his disciples. He prayed by himself out in the wilderness. He prayed in the synagogue, in public gatherings. Jesus was a prayer. And with these words, he's not suggesting. He's commanding. Pray. When you pray, he's saying, you pray. Be a praying people. Because I am. He was a praying man. When you pray, not if. A prayerless Christian is, is, a, is a self-sufficient Christian, which is really an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp, right? It, it is. A prayerless Christian. It's an oxymoron. Does that make sense? It's so, see, it's not just breaking a rule. You know, Jesus says pray, and if we don't, it's, it's not just breaking a rule. He's our life, he's all powerful. He's interested in every detail of your life. You're his child. He's the only one who can meet our true needs and answers. So to not pray is to say with our life, at its worst, God, you're not these great things. And at its bare minimum, if you're God, I really don't feel like I need you right now. You see, it's not just breaking a rule, a little tiny rule. It's saying with your life, either you're not the God you say you are, or I believe you are, I just... I'll come to you when I have some real trouble. Which we know, prayer life gets really good, doesn't it, in moments of crisis? It does. It should. But could it always be like that? That rich, indeed. Or maybe if we think about why it's hard, maybe our lives are too easy compared to Christians of other centuries. Right? That's possible. I think it's getting a bit more challenging in the stigma of being Christians. Hopefully it's going to draw us in more to being a praying people in church. We know everyone turns into a a, a prayer in a a foxhole, don't they? Or maybe we've been shaped by our culture more than we think. Maybe we have. Our culture that's materialistic doesn't think of the spiritual world. Only it's the natural what we can see is the only world. and, And doesn't think in theistic terms that God is involved in everything, which he is. Maybe we've been shaped too much by our culture, even as Christians. May we catch a God-centered, God-filled vision of his greatness that brings us to our knees and fills us with this love and a desire to pray, not just because Jesus said do it, but because we can't help ourselves. I have to speak to my Lord. I want to speak to my Lord. I get to speak to my Lord. But if you're paying close attention, you look down at the text, you might say, well, Jeff, verse 5 says, they love to stand and pray too, don't they? It says it there. Those these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they love to stand and pray. But why? For what reason? The hypocritical prayer has a selfish, self-seeking, self-promoting motive. To be seen by others, the text says. To be seen by others. There's a heart motive going. There's, that's where we get to the heart now. There's a heart motive to be seen by others, and Jesus says that to expose the hearts of these individuals here. They were praying to impress people. A public reputation, our first uh, negative example is. It's a picture of a Pharisee, a religious leader who's on his way to the synagogue, and he's just so religious, he's so religious, that on his way, he's just so enamored with God, Or so he thinks. I can't even wait to get to the synagogue. I can't even wait to get there. I'm just going to stop here in the corner and just loudly proclaim it. Let everybody see it. Maybe spin around a little bit and bump into a few people so they can see me. I'm just so religious. I can't even wait to get to the synagogue. That's the picture we get here. That's the picture of the heart we get here. You know, prayer reveals, maybe more than anything, what we truly believe about god it, it's a place where theology meets the road where what we really believe about god comes out so we pray so we believe so we pray is the phrase well here i would say why they are praying so they believe god was useful to them he was a commodity he was something to use to get ahead in life to build a reputation to build up a resume to get cultural kind of influence. He was a commodity to them. He was useful to them. The religion that they practiced, had, to them, it had a, a cultural cachet, maybe, or currency. John Stott said about the, this, this person here, this example, unfortunately, it's not prayer which they love, nor the God they're supposed to be praying to. No, they love themselves. And the opportunity which public praying gives them to parade themselves. God becomes just a useful tool. I think what Jesus is saying is that whenever we practice any display of spirituality or piety or devotion or service, whatever you want to call it, for our own recognition, our own credit, it's like wearing a mask. That's the word hypocrisy. The Greek actors would wear a mask and hide their face behind a mask. That's what that word means. It's like wearing a mask that looks really great on the outside, but the inside is miles from God, far from God. The heart is far from God. When we do that, we're going to God because he's useful. When praying is about going to God because he's God, because he's beautiful, because he's worthy, because he cares, actually, and because he can do something about it, it's all-powerful one. That's what prayer is about. We might think as we started, I said, yeah, okay, I understand that, but I, I wouldn't be that showy. And I-, I, probably th- I probably think, yeah, we probably wouldn't. I can't think of anybody in here that really go out and stand on a street corner. That's not me. I don't struggle with that, with using my spirituality, my Christianity, impress people, or using God as a commodity for personal gain. That just sounds weird. Well, here's some questions just to ask yourself. Just to probe our own hearts. We don't want to assume that Jesus doesn't get us in the 2019 and ask for them. Here's a few questions. How do you respond when prayers don't get answered? Or that it doesn't get answered the way you want? Do you respond with maybe anger or frustration at God and view him as this God that just loves to get in the way and stand in the way of what you want and need? Or do you respond in humble trust, knowing that His will is perfect, and if answering my prayer meant anything less than his perfect will, I don't want that. How do you respond when prayers don't get answered? It's a good question. Here's another one. How do you respond when the recognition you feel you deserve for something at church or maybe in a family, uh, some good deed somewhere, some act of service, when it doesn't get the recognition you feel you deserve? How do you respond? Is it, see if I help next time? (laughs) Or is it, you know, God knows. God knows. That's the only audience I need. He knows. How do you respond? Here's another question. How do you respond when you look at our culture and you see the reputation of the church kind of slide a little bit? Maybe some rightfully so, but not all of it. Or just people's opinion of Christians changing. We hear more and more labels like, hypocrisy, bigot, closed-minded, backwards, being attached to our exclusive beliefs. How do you respond to that? With a self-righteous indignation? Or anxious or worry? We've got to get the power back. We've got to get it back. We're losing it all. How do you respond to that? Or humble trust that God knows our hearts. He's not surprised by what's happening in the culture. He's not caught off guard. How's another one, last one? How do you when you miss church? Are you more concerned with what others are going to think that you missed? Or are you more just I miss the time of fellowship, I miss being with God's people, I miss worshiping him in the corporate setting. So you see, maybe there are some areas where we can apply this to our own life, don't you think? It might not be on a street corner, but it might be in the way you respond to the culture and the church being labeled differently or missing church or when you're serving or prayers don't get answered. The motive Jesus wants for us is to pray and live the Christian life. The first and foremost is doing it because when we do it, we approach God. And that's the primary thing of prayer. If we could just get that, we'd be good. We're approaching God to know him, to acknowledge him as great, as Lord, as judge, as father, as good, as all-powerful and saviour. So is your primary motive in prayer to glorify God and worship by bowing before Him as He is? That's our question. As the psalmist said, and I used in my prayer, you've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. So rather than public reputation, we get to approach God. And the true prayer's reward is conversing with God. That's the reward. You get God in that moment in a unique, intimate way. That's the reward. The reward for the hypocrite is the self-promotion that already came with it. It's our first warning. How not to pray. Jesus sometimes looks to start with the negative. How not to pray. To impress people with public reputation with a heart for God. Here's our second one. Our second one's this. Don't pray to impress God with, we're going to call it, meaningless chatter, but with a heart for meaningful communication. So first one, don't pray to impress people, but don't pray to impress God. Verse 7 says, And when you pray, we'll go back to 6, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. That's kind of our meaningless chatter That's how I decided to describe it. Uh, empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Heap up empty phrases. That's a great translation of it. Heaping up empty phrases, meaningless chatter, we're calling it. It's the prayer of words or requests without the heart and mind being engaged. Meaningless chatter, empty phrases, without your heart and mind engaged with God. It's kind of the idea that if we could just get the mechanics right, or if I could just say the right amount of words, Or say it the right amount of times, I could get God to do what I want God to do. As if He's waiting and listening and saying to us, Ah, if you just would have said it one more time, I was getting ready to answer a yes. If you just would have said it one more time, I would have given you what you wanted. What kind of God would be impressed by our mechanics of prayer? (laughs) Or our statistics? And hours clogged in who responded based upon the number of words you said or number of syllables in those words. How about that one? That would be pretty good. I heard a story this week by a pastor. I was reading a commentary where he said, an example of this for him was, I was praying as a 10-year-old boy and I said, Here are supplications, O Lord. And he went, I didn't even know what I was saying. Talk about meaningless chatter. I didn't even know what I was saying, supplications at 10. Uh, meaningless words, if you don't know it. Now, this doesn't prohibit us from bringing our real needs to God to be heard. We're going to be clear about that in this series, as we're going to discover even in the coming weeks. As we see here, he, he loves us like a heavenly father. He knows your needs, so yes, we bring them to him. We should ask him. We should bring him our requests and needs. It also doesn't mean that we shouldn't repeat ourselves in prayer. want to be careful there. Even Jesus prayed a third time in the garden, didn't he? He took a a similar request back to the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's more being warned here is the emptiness of a heart in just vain repeating. As if God were some magic genie who could be manipulated or impressed by our lofty words or lots of words or lots of syllables. Makes me think of, I don't remember that movie, old movie now, but Meet the Parents when Greg goes to dinner for the first time. And he's sitting at the table, and they ask him to do grace, and he, he's, oh, sure. And his girlfriend looks at him like, What? Yeah. You know prayer? And he starts, I've said grace at many a dinner table, was his response. You know, it's that kind of empty sort of, and then he goes on to pray, and you go, know, He has no idea what he's saying. He has no idea what he's saying. And they all get it too. They open their eyes like, you know, one of those. Or how about the long road trip with your kids? And you're driving. Are we there yet? 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 As if somehow the reputation was the little hamster in your engine uh, uh, you know, that was going to make your car go faster. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? As we could force God to answer our prayer. Again, God just wants meaningful communion with you. With Him. Even as that re- includes our requests. Mind and heart engaged in Prayer. Not empty words or repetition thinking that we can manipulate him somehow. He just wants you to know that, and and you'd expose the real you to him because he already knows it anyways, doesn't he? Meaningful communion, not empty words. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? So our two warnings, they're given to Christian disciples in this Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon of the New Kingdom means these warnings are for us. It should be maybe even forefront of our mind as we come to pray, because that's what Jesus starts with. Teach us to pray. Okay, don't be like this, or watch out for this at least. Um, doing it to, for a for show, uh, display, a public reputation. And be careful too. Don't view me, God, as someone to be manipulated with your great lofty speech. Have meaningful communion. And, me- and know that you're approaching God. So our two warnings, those are our two warnings. God just wants you to come as a child trusting a father. If you want a great example of this, look later today at 1 Kings 18. Write that down. 1 Kings 18, you can go look later today where the priests of Baal, they do the perfect example of vain repetitions. They're just repeating phrases and words, and you know what Elijah says to them? He's like, your God is probably on the toilet, basically, is what he says to them. And then here we have Elijah's simple, heartfelt prayer. Here it is. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you're God in Israel, that I am your servant. I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Talk about just simple, heartfelt communion with God. Take a look at that example later today. And he's a model, really, of our positive third our positive example Jesus gives us here it is the positive one now pray with a heart of exclusive humble confidence so Jesus goes from the two negatives now to the positive one for us pray with this this kind of heart exclusive humble confidence on your outline there's a little typo in this section Uh, It's supposed to say verses 6 and 8 there. I think it says, what's it say? 7 and 8. So point 3 is supposed to say 6 and 8. Just wanted to clear that up for you. So rather than pray for showy display, he says this in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and, and pray to your Father who is in secret And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And rather than heap up empty words, he says in verse 8, here's our other positive. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So go into this closet and pray, out in the corner, and know that He's your Father who knows what you need. I thought we'd take just three little phrases to summarize the positive, because this is really, I want us to get this. This is application for us to, how to pray now, how positively to pray. Be careful of these hard examples, these negative ones, and yet now, how, pray like this. So these three little phrases to prepare us even for the rest of this series over the next couple weeks. Here's the first one. Close the door. We're going to call it close the door. Jesus says, don't pray proudly on the corner, but go into your closet and shut the door. Now, as we know, Jesus is after the heart. He's after our hearts, our heart attitude in prayer. What's your heart like when you come to him? That's what he's after in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not merely concerned with architecture here. Like you've got to pray in a closed room. He's going for our heart here. Or some people I've heard say that they hear this and they say, well, we can't publicly pray then. Well, think about that. No more prayer meetings. No more praying in the congregation. Uh, we, I just don't publicly pray because Jesus says that. That might be actually be an example of one of the negatives, if you take it that way. Kind of a prideful thing. I don't pray in public. Jesus said use a closet. That's not necessarily what Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus prayed in public. They pray in public all through the Bible. They always pray when they gather The saints. It's all over the place. So he must be going for something deeper then, isn't he? Something deeper that maybe a closet would facilitate. We're going to talk about that. It's back to our words uh, in point three, the word exclusive. That's the idea here. Close the door. Exclusive. Exclusivity is the word. He means when you come to pray, exclusively realize. Take a laser point focus and go, I am approaching God I am approaching my maker. So many distractions get in there. It's really the one thing that matters in your prayer life. It's the one thing. If you can come to prayer and come with the attitude of a heart that says, I'm coming to God. I'm coming to God. Recalling, okay, I'm approaching God. He's here I want to focus on him, excluding some of the things or distractions of life. Close the door. I'm praying to him. It's about him as he comes, even as he meets me and hears of my needs here. How easy is it, like, to be praying? And you're like, I mean, I can pray and the weirdest things will pop into my mind. A grocery list. A gift that I want to remember. to. Oh, I want to buy that for my wife for her birthday. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It pops in your mind. Just the weirdest things will pop into your mind in prayer, don't you think? Is that, is that your, I mean, everybody's shaking their heads. Is, see, we're all in this together. It's okay. You're in a safe place. Oh, just things can pop into your mind. Exclusivity. We're praying to him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, love him. He's passed in the 80s a long time ago. But uh, he said even when he was praying in front of the congregation, this was really challenging for me this week. In some sense, he removes himself and even the congregation from that moment, that's what we're getting at here. He goes, I'm speaking to God in that moment. Of course, I'm praying for the congregation. Of course, I'm bringing our needs to him. But you can even close the door in public prayers. What it means is it's, it's God and us as we speak to him. He went in on in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount to say this. And yes, having done that, meaning closing the door and even closing himself out and even the congregation in public prayers he went on to say and yes having done that I shut out and forget myself that's what our Lord tells us to do here there's no value in entering into the secret chamber and locking the door if the whole time I'm full of self and thinking about myself and priding myself on prayer I might as well be standing on the street corner see this does apply to us you can do it in the closet too Maybe that does mean for you having a certain time, and it probably does for a lot of us, where you lock yourself away in a room by yourself, maybe a literal closet, tell your spouse or kids what you're doing before you do it. (laughs) What are you doing in the closet? (laughs) Maybe it does mean something like that. Maybe it means turning off your cell phone or making sure there's not one screen in your proximity. You know how hard that is? That's really hard. Maybe it means that for us today. Maybe it means going back to the gospel for you over and over and over again so that your heart is melted again by what Jesus did for you on the cross so those distractions are less and less prone to to jump in there. So that your heart and your loves are reoriented so much that when you come to prayer, you're just laser beam focused. That doesn't come overnight, does it? It's a discipline. It is. Like we said, it's hard to do. God first. Salvation in Him. Prayer is about communing with Him so that little by little, even little incremental steps, even your prayer life becomes less distracted and more focused on God. That's what we want. Isn't that what you want? I want that. I'm so tired of the things popping in my mind. We're distracted people. And a heart that hasn't been melted. That's why I said we go back to the gospel the more you're melted by the sheer love of God for you and that when you come to him in prayer, he's not looking at you like, what is he doing? Why is he coming again? Why is she here again? I mean, I wish they just pray. I wish she just pray. No, yes, he wants you to come. He loves you. Let your heart be just enamored with his saving grace. His gra- by, saved by grace alone through the work of Christ so that the distracted, self-centered me, I, begins to move out of the way. You want to pray more positively as Jesus tells us? Steep your heart more and more in what he's done for you in the gospel. It'll it'll remove you. Nothing like the gospel removes us and yet draws us in. That's the great thing about the gospel. It removes you entirely. Jesus saved you and yet what could draw you in more than knowing that God saved you by grace alone? Do you see that? You want to be less distracted in prayer. Keep Wrapping yourself in what God has done for you, and who He is. The great uh, writer, Southern writer, Flannery O'Connor got this. She, just, she, you know, she said in a poetic way, where maybe Martin Luther Jones was theological. She said, "Here was a prayer she wrote to God. Dear God, I cannot love you the way I want to. You're the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon." What I'm afraid of dear God is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon. And that I'll judge myself by the shadow that's nothing. I do not know you God because I'm in the way. Close the door. You're approaching God. Here's the second one. Realize his presence actually. So the positive we close the door, we we want to um remove ourself if we can, and even as we pray for ourself, focus and know. But also realize his presence. When you close that door, Jesus says, your father who sees in secret meets you there and rewards you with himself. We have to realize, when you pray, you are with another. You're not alone. You are with another when you pray. Sometimes in the evangelical, rational, western world we're so concerned with praying right the right words the right doctrine thinking the right things about god which we should be absolutely as we said prayer reveals your theology more than anything it matters how we pray and what we believe but sometimes we forget that it's okay to know that god wants us to have real experiences of him too a real understanding that his presence is there. To, to, to know that you're not alone when you pray. He's right there communing with you. Through a lot of those thoughts and those words and what we know about him, it's okay to, to seek an experience with him even in prayer. We're so afraid of that like because we don't want to over-emotionalize or turn it all into emotion and lose our brain and our thoughts and our hearts. But it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. If we could just realize more and see that because of Jesus Christ, when when we pray, he's opened up the way. He's opened up the dividing curtain of the temple that used to be there. It's gone. You have direct access to God. Have you ever heard of the six degrees of separation? It's that idea that you could, by talking of six stages of people, get a message, I think, like to anybody. So, like, if I wanted... I probably have six people, six levels of people that if I spoke to her and she spoke to him and to her and to him and him, you could get a message to like the president or somebody or, or just somewhere you could get a message to a person that you couldn't just call on the phone. That's gone with God. Those degrees, those, that separation, it's gone. You've got direct access. He's right here. You don't need a mediator. You have Christ. He's opened the way. You don't need somebody else. You don't have to play that game telephone, you know. No, it's direct access. You have God. You're with another when we pray. We need to realize that more and more we have a unique audience of one with the sovereign king of the world, the creator of all, whose one breath could sweep away everything, and yet through Jesus, he's your father. He's your Father. And so he has a plan. He wants to give you good things. He has a program, a plan for your life. He sees your needs. He knows them even before you ask, verse 8 says, doesn't it? He knows your needs before you ask. He wants to bless us with himself in all his storehouses of goodness, way more than we actually desire it as a father to a child. So finally, because of that, request in confidence then. Request in confidence. Knowing that one of the primary ways that God likes to reveal himself to us in the Bible is as a father, and the best kind of father. So lay bare your fears, your needs, your longings, your requests. He knows them anyways. Bring them to you knowing that he loves you in Christ. The evangelical mind has to get rid of this thought. Here's the thought. We have to rid our minds of this thought that somehow God is the one who stands between us and our needs and our desires. He's some grumpy despot up there, right? Just ah, it will never, you know, I'll never get him. And you know, by our many repetitions, we can I can make him see what I really need. Get out of my way, God. We, we view God like that, as if he's this roadblock in between us and the blessings of life we need. He's way more ready to give than we are ready to receive, one commentator said I was reading this week. Don't you like it when your kids or grandkids, they come and they, just, they ask you for something in such a sincere way? Even if it's something you, they just, you know you'll do for them. And they know you'll do for them. It's like, Daddy, are you going to tuck me in? They don't have to ask that. We've been doing it for hundreds of nights for years but I'm so glad that they do. As a father, he's the same way. He knows your needs, so don't take that as oh, he knows already. I don't need to ask. Don't you love it when the kid comes? Tuck me in. Will you bring me a glass of water, Daddy. Sometimes that one, I'm like, all right, I'll get it, you know. But he he loves. He wants to. He he's a father. That's why he describes himself that way. He loves personal contact with you. He's not an angry despot in your way he's your father. Let that open up avenues of prayer for us. Let it just open up just floodgates of personal contact for us. He's not an angry guy in your way. He's a father that wants to bless you with everything. He has storehouses, the Bible describes it, storehouses to shower on us. They're not always what we think or hope, but if his will is perfect, they're what we need. Here's what Hebrew Hebrews 4 says to close. These will be our words that we wrap with today. The writer of Hebrews had this in mind. Come with confidence to this God. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. so, so then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, teach us to pray over these three weeks. Let's be praying for each other in this series. That God would just open up those avenues of personal communion with him. Let's pray. Lord, we are here. And so are you. And you love to have your children come to you. So God, let it be simple. Let it be really simple, not complex this week for us. You want us to talk to you, and we can because of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen.